Hello, my name's David Brunsman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm talking with Helen Thompson, and we are going to try and do an audit of the current state of British politics. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics, and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. Helen, I asked you what you thought we should focus on for this conversation, and you gave me a list of five things, and I'm just going to read this list out because we're going to try and do all five if we can. So you thought that the, the key themes for us to discuss in trying to work out what's going on in British politics are the pandemic, the state of the union, Labour's deep weakness, geopolitics, including post-Brexit geopolitics, and climate change. And in a way, I think those are the five things that we've been talking about pretty much throughout the whole of the last year, trying to make sense of them. And it's a good moment to try and pull them together with your help. But I also wanted to say that we would love to get questions from people listening about any of these themes. So before we take a summer break, which we are going to do this year, Helen and I would love to try and answer some of your questions about these big themes we've been talking about over the past year. Like everyone, we've been trapped in our own little bubble and we would love to hear more from you. We'll tell you at the end about how you can get these questions to us. And then Helen and I will do at least two Q&A sessions where we will try and answer as many of these questions as we can. They may not all be on these five themes, but these five themes to us seem to cover most of the big questions. And so this conversation is partly just as a way of kicking off those more in-depth conversations in response to what you have to ask us. So this is just going to be mainly me asking some questions to Helen and maybe Helen asking some questions to me. So should we start with the pandemic? We've talked about it quite a lot, obviously. We are maybe a month, six weeks out, probably as things look now, from Britain finally coming out of lockdown. The 21st of June date looks like it's going to be postponed, but probably only for two or four weeks. The UK as a country is quite close. It's never going to be fully vaccinated, but it's quite close to being vaccinated to a level where it's possible to think that the worst of the pandemic is past. I think when we talked about this in January, I said we are entering the phase. It's not an original thought to me. Keir Starmer has been saying it all the time too. We're entering the phase of vaccine politics. And we're still in it, and it's not just here. So we're not going to talk about this today, but there have been very interesting elections in Germany this week, in Saxony-Anhalt, in which the CDU have done much better, the incumbents have done much better than predicted. And it follows a pattern that we saw in the local and devolved elections here, that incumbents, under the conditions of vaccine politics, seem to do well. Even in France, Macron, for all the turmoil of French politics, Macron's approval ratings are holding up. And so in a way, the question for me is, when do you think the phase of vaccine politics ends? Do you think we're close to the sort of January to July period of politics, just looking at the UK for now? 
it'll look like one particular phase and there is a, a sort of post-vaccine politics coming. Once we're out of lockdown and the vaccine becomes a background fact of British political life, does something shift? I think that actually that, that question is, is not possible to answer at the moment. I mean, I entirely agree with you that we've been through different phases of the politics of the, the pandemic and I think that the beginning of this year was a turning point and it was both a turning point because of the politics of vaccine began and it was also a turning point because the possibility that, that Britain was leaving the European Union without a trade agreement ended too. And so I think that the two things have gone hand in hand in that part of the fact that the politics of the vaccine is being radically easier for the Conservatives than the period... I'd say, which ran from June-ish time last year through to December, which ran through the Cummings Barnard Castle, the problems with schools and the severe difficulties with local lockdowns and the complicated politics around that in relation to which parts of the country got resources from the Treasury. That This has been a lot easier, obviously, for the government, and they've been able to use it in part, I think, to justify as an argument for Brexit, and that's why those two issues are together. Now, I think that what happens next is going to be a politics of the economy. But I still think the politics of the vaccine has still got some road in it, partly because if it becomes clear that actually some of the other European countries end up with slower economic recoveries, then there's still, I think, going to be something to be gained from presenting that Britain was good at the vaccine, that narrative that Johnson's been keen on. But also, if it's the case that actually getting out of all this becomes rather more stop-start than it would be in a more optimistic scenario, then I think there's still going to be politics of the vaccine in the sense of the question of whether we're going to go down the road of saying that people who are fully vaccinated have essentially got privileges for moving about and going into places that people who haven't got the vaccine haven't. And at that point, the politics of the vaccine, I don't think, goes away. Tony Blair, who's been over this period of politics, a kind of bellwether, he called earlier than anyone else for the first vaccination to be prioritised over allowing people to get two and others have followed. And he's now gone earlier than almost anyone else in calling for some form of vaccine passport as an inevitable consequence of this. So, And if he's right about that, I completely agree with you. The politics of the vaccine is not going away. I'm assuming the reason that we don't know for sure at this point, but I'm assuming the reason that 21st of June will be put back by a few weeks or maybe a month is precisely because the one thing that cannot be allowed to happen is a resumption of stop-start. I mean, it may be, who knows what will happen in the autumn, who knows what will happen in the winter, but stop-start is the thing that everyone wants to avoid. There's also a question, we haven't talked about British politics since Dominic Cummings, among other things, gave a new account of what he was doing in Durham and then in Barnard Castle, but also gave a seven-hour excoriation of the British government's response to the pandemic over the past year and a bit. It's sort of blown over. I'm assuming it hasn't completely blown over. Next year, we'll see, unless something delays it, an inquiry. The the inquiry will no doubt itself be drawn out. But there will presumably in the sort of post-vaccine phase be a taking stock. I mean, Cummings' intervention seemed to me it still came in that point where it is possible for the government to do what it did, which is to say they are concentrating on simply managing the situation. But do you think there will come a point 
where there is a taking of stock, both for better and for worse. So as you said, maybe the British economy will be doing better and there will be an argument made seen in the round. The British government's performance had some real merit to it, but also a taking stock of some of the issues that Cummings raised. Or do you think post-vaccine politics is on these questions, post-pandemic politics? I think that this could go either way. I mean, I think that when an inquiry happens, that there are going to be some pretty tough questions about the preparation of the British state and the those who administer the British state and the politicians and how ill-prepared they were for what happened and the early decisions. I don't think there's any way around the fact that the United Kingdom was supposed to be with the United States, one of the two best prepared countries for a pandemic, and clearly were preparing for the kind of pandemic that didn't come and that the early months were incredibly problematic in a, in a, in a number of ways. In, in that sense, I think it would be not quite madness, but it would be very, very odd if some hard questions weren't asked about what happened in order to make sure that next time the preparation was much, much better. As I say, the difficult thing still comes with how this interacts with the questions of how difficult the economic recovery is. Because I think that if the economic recovery goes well, there actually will be a space for quite a lot of critical reflection on the pandemic and response to the pandemic. If we're into quite difficult economic times and the recovery stalls or it's very distributionally skewed or it just sets in motion things that we haven't really thought about, that's where the urgency is going to lie. So in a way, that sounds a little bit like win-win for the government. That is, if there is the space to really reflect on what went wrong in the early pandemic response, the creation of that space will be provided by an economic recovery which will benefit the government, no question, and allow its kind of meta-narrative to take hold. On the other hand, if there's still more firefighting going on, that doesn't create the space for really hard reflection on what the government did wrong. It sounds quite good as a pair of scenarios for the government. Well, possibly, but I think the other thing we have to bear in mind is that there are two levels, weren't there, to the Cummings intervention. One of them, at least looking from the outside, looked like an intervention in, let's call it, the politics of the court of Boris Johnson. And then the other was an intervention in the preparedness of the British state and its political class for coping with a pandemic. And obviously, Cummings wanted to use what he had to say in relation to the second as part of the fight he's fighting in the, around the first still So anything where there are further revelations about what happened at the beginning that are damaging to Boris Johnson personally, and I think that the Hancock issue is a bit separate because when all's said and done, he can be sort of pushed aside by Johnson, then that is more difficult territory for the government. But it looks thus far, particularly as I understand it, that Cummings hasn't provided written evidence to support some of the allegations that he made about Johnson and Hancock, that as an intervention in the politics of the Johnson court, that this hasn't got as much legs in as some people thought last, uh, was it last week? I've lost track of time now. (laughs) Whenever it was. (laughs) Whenever it was, whenever it was. I'm sure also given the choice, the government would much rather have strong economic recovery and hard questions about the pandemic than the economic conditions being sufficiently pressing that there isn't room for hard questions about the pandemic. I'm sure they would take that trade-off. And in a way, these things are obviously all connected, but they also have in the background, I think, Brexit, all of them, as you said at the beginning there, the connection between vaccine politics and post-Brexit politics is strong. 
And it's certainly strong in the case of the second topic. And this is something we've been talking about a lot. We did a series of episodes to try and give some historical shape to the conversations around the future of the Union and the state of devolved government and the possibility of Scottish independence. We focused on Scotland, but of course we had conversations too about Wales and Northern Ireland. As things stand now, if you look at UK politics and look at the coming months, as things stand this morning, the pressure point is currently Northern Ireland. And of course, the questions about the SNP in Scotland are going to burn slowly away over the next months and years. But it certainly looks at the moment as though there might be quite a concentrated attention to the real challenge that the Northern Ireland Protocol post-Brexit poses for the politics of the union and unionism. And this does have the potential to consume, if nothing else, a lot of the government's attention over this summer. Not, And it also has the potential to escalate into something much more serious. Yeah, I would say that looking from the outside anyway, that this is like the government's number one problem at the moment, because it's not getting any better. And the things that are being said, including what's been said by David Frost in the article that I wrote, I think it was for the Financial Times, are pretty much in the vein of something has to change, otherwise we're not going to be able to continue with the protocol as is. And obviously that would be a a huge moment, not just in terms of the politics of the United Kingdom, internal politics of the United Kingdom, but in terms of Westminster's relations with the European um, Union and also the relationship with the Biden administration, because this is an, an area where the government is incredibly constrained. It's constrained because it effectively signed up to an agreement that was going to be pretty difficult to work from its point of view and hoped, appeared to hope anyway, there would be considerably more bend in it than there's turned out to be. And they're constrained because it becomes a defining issue of the future relationship with the European Union. And the administration in Washington is, particularly because it's Biden, are not going to simply say, oh, the British government's got a free hand to deal with this issue however it wants. We're not going to take a position that isn't what's going to happen. And we've already seen in terms of the internal politics of Northern Ireland that the difficulties here have already finished off Arlene Foster's leadership of the, the Democratic Unionist Party. So the, the space for acting looks like it's getting narrower and narrower and the states seem to be getting higher and higher. I think that, that is a, it is a very, very big problem for the government. In a way, it reminds me of conversations that we had before the pandemic and in the early part of the pandemic about what are the sanctions that the EU has if the British government does breach its obligations. I mean, as you say, were the British government to say that the protocol to which it signed up cannot be allowed to stand. That would have very serious consequences for UK-US relations. But also, it would presumably require action on the part of the European Union. And yet, my memory of the conversations we had with, with Kenneth Armstrong and others is that though there are many things the European Union can do, leverage is relatively limited at this point. In a way, isn't everybody constrained? Presumably the Biden administration is also relatively constrained. It's not totally clear apart from making life difficult. What they can do either is the ultimate choice here not still in the hands of the Johnson government? Um, I think this is quite hard to think through, but I think that the even if you'd said a few months ago that muddle through seemed like the most likely outcome, 
and hoping that time would change certain things, including perhaps some of the patterns of economic relations between Britain, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. The things that have happened in the last few months suggest that, and including I think what's happened in terms of the DUP, suggests that the politics isn't going to wait for economic change to catch up with it. I think from the point of view of the EU, obviously the ultimate sanction is to bring the trade agreement to an end, but that will be a huge thing to do in response to the problem of of Northern Ireland itself, which from the point of view of the big picture for the the European um, Union, you might say, doesn't warrant such an action. But the reality is, is, as we know, is that the EU has made the defence of the single market, even though aspects of that are rather disingenuous, the defence of the, the integrity of the single market, it has invested a lot of its credibility in that notion through this whole politics of Brexit right the way through from the months after the referendum. And I think that it did so without quite understanding perhaps what the implications of involving itself so deeply in the politics of Northern Ireland were. So there's always been that two things going on. On the one hand, the EU line that it's about defending the, the single market and defending the Good Friday Agreement. But at the same time, from the point of view of the Unionists, it's the Northern Ireland Protocol that is the very threat to the Good Friday Agreement as they see it. So the perverse consequence of Brexit is embroiled the EU much more into the politics of Northern Ireland than it ever was before. And in ways, I think, that has, I wouldn't say necessarily caught people by surprised, but perhaps though the unintended outcome of intentions that started trying to achieve other ends. It does also remind me there was a period in the conversation that we were having where the question of what decisions or positions were going to be adopted in Dublin by the Irish government were absolutely crucial to the future of British politics and also to the future outcome of Brexit. And many things were either put on hold or fell away over the pandemic period. That's one that feels like it's coming back. There are really big choices also. When I said, you know, this is in the court of Boris Johnson, but there are still big choices to be made in Dublin too. And there's a question for the EU, and this was the question that we discussed at length, almost ad nauseam, the extent to which the EU is committed to back up the Irish government, come what may. Yeah, I think if we look through this, we can see a sort of history on all sides, in a way, I think, of of optimism that's gone awry. If we go back to the the situation with the interim agreement that led to the the first version of the or the backstopping principle, and you ask the question, well, why did Theresa May's government ever agree to this when it was going to make it extraordinarily unlikely right from the start that it would then be able to get a withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons? That the hope seems to be a, the really vain, futile hope that by the time that actually came to a withdrawal agreement, that the issue would have been surpassed because of a trade agreement would be if not entirely agree, but would be in place to go and the backstop wouldn't come into effect. If we look at it from the point of the EU, there was a, a commitment to this idea of defending the integrity of the single market and its indivisibility, even though in fact it's not indivisible. But at the same time, they were willing to, or they saw that the Northern Ireland issue was the big weakness of the British government's negotiating position and was there to be exploited. And if there was some hope among some that Brexit wasn't actually going to happen, that the Remainers in Parliament were going to triumph and get their, at least get their second referendum, then committing to the strategy that they did on the Northern Irish issue could be seen as 
one that was supposed to yield the end of Brexit not happening rather than Brexit happening and then something like the Northern Ireland Protocol, which obviously isn't the same as the backstop agreement coming into effect. And now all sides that not what they wanted have now been left with something that is actually really quite difficult and that looks like it has the potential to harden choices really in a really troublesome way. One last brief question on the union, though it's a huge question. If Northern Ireland will be the focus for the coming months, but the Scottish question, of course, has not gone away, and these things are connected. We've talked in podcasts over the last year about the muscular unionism that the Johnson government wants to adopt. We talked about the the question of England and where it fits in. Uh, We've had the first indications of the new boundary reviews that are coming in for the Westminster Parliament, and there's been much discussion about individual winners and losers. But if you look at it in the round, the winner is England, which gets more seats, and Scotland and Wales lose seats. So England's position in Westminster parliamentary terms becomes, if not stronger, larger. And that's going to rumble on over the coming years. Do you think the Northern Ireland question, if it really starts to bite, I mean, becomes really acute, accelerates the pace at which the SNP starts pushing for its own agenda? It makes presumably muscular unionism harder it distracts the Johnson government, it potentially weakens the Johnson government? Or do you think that from the SNP's perspective, it needs to wait for that to pass before it makes its move? I think that the unknown here really is how serious the Scottish government is with Nicola Sturgeon in charge of of really seriously and relentlessly pursuing the second referendum. If it had been the case in the elections for the, the Scottish Parliament in May that the SNP had won an overall majority, then she would have been under enormous internal pressure to get on with things. I wonder if it doesn't quite suit her that the fact that they fell short just at the last because it takes the immediate pressure away. I think two things. On the one hand, I think that you're right that the muscular unionism strategy that Johnson wants is quite difficult at a time when the difficulties of the union in relation to Northern Ireland are so evident. And the fact that this is not something that's just contained as an internal matter of the United Kingdom or even internal matter of the United Kingdom plus the Republic of Ireland. But the Northern Irish question, on the other hand, has really hard questions to put, if you like, to Nicola Sturgeon, because it really brings to the fore this issue of like what it would mean for there to be a border and what it would mean in terms of a Scotland that was inside the European um, Union and in the rest of the United Kingdom, England and Wales, leave the Northern Ireland question aside here for a moment, in England and Wales that wasn't. And the more the difficulties of what it means to have such a border are part of overt politics, I think that's quite tough for Sturgeon as well. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So the third of your topics was the weakness. I think the phrase you used was Labour's deep weakness. 
the it's a, it's a bit of a stretch, but the the results in the German regional election in Saxony-Anhalt, the SPD in Germany, which has deeper weakness than the British Labour Party, probably, and again that was highlighted there—a very very weak performance—and it's a pattern that's been repeated in many parts of the world in in mature democracies that the established centre-left party has really struggled. And for a long time, it's looked like two things are going on. The Labour Party in the UK displays some of those symptoms, you might almost say, of morbidity of other centre-left parties, not least the way in which it struggles to reconcile the division between its traditional support and its more urban and educated support. And at the same time, the UK Labour Party is enormously helped by the the first-past-the-post system, which prevents it from fracturing between those two wings and also makes it the only plausible or possible party of government. And if I was in the Labour Party, I would take much more comfort from the fate of the Democrats in the United States and the fact that Joe Biden is president than what might be going on in Saxony-Anhalt. And yet there is always this question, and it's one that sort of nags away at me, which is, what if the the first-past-the-post system is actually propping up a moribund party? Not much has changed since we last talked about this, apart from the fact that Keir Starmer has cried on TV, which I don't think changes anything. If I put that blunt question to you, do you think that there are real signs that the UK Labour Party might be sharing some of the, I hate to use this phrase, but almost existential challenges that other centre-left parties face? The centre-left in France, that traditional party is over. We don't know in Germany, in Italy, it's over. It looks like it's over. Does Labour have more in common with that than with the US Democrats? The US Democrats actually really complicate this question because one way of looking at it would be to lean into your electoral system thesis that the existing centre-left parties can do fine, at least under certain conditions in electoral systems that prop them up. But I think the difficulty with the US comparison is that it, it just doesn't really make any sense to think about how the Democratic Party won the presidential election in November of last year without thinking about Trump and obviously its performance in other respects, both at the the federal level in Congress and in the states was rather less convincing. So are the Democrats the exception simply because they had an opponent like Donald Trump? That seems to me at least a reasonable hypothesis. I don't think there's any doubt that the electoral system works to Labour's favour compared to the situation in which continental centre-left parties find themselves. There obviously are though some exceptions um, where the centre-left is still in government in the European Union countries. I think that there's no doubt that the division in the electoral coalition that you described is a big part of the problem across the board. I think though, and this ties back to what we've just been talking about, the thing that Labour has to deal with as a party that just that is simply different than any of the other centre-left parties we might care to think about is the union question. Because we are in a situation with with the Labour Party here where it has been, you know, like effectively wiped out from what had been for quite some time the strongest part of the union for its electoral support. And it's got the problem of England where it's only been able to win a majority of the seats when it's been winning landslides like Attlee and Blair. And now we're in a position where, because of English votes for English laws, in order for it to be able to legislate on matters pertaining only to England, it's either going to have to win that landslide, which looks highly improbable, or it's going to have to rely on some kind of agreement with the Scottish Nationalists to undo that effectively de facto 
constitutional change that's been made, even though it was only done by a change to the standing order. So it seems to me that there is something singular to the Labour Party's predicament, as well as the things that it has in common with other centre-left parties. Presumably also the other disanalogy with the United States is that when you simply look at the coalition that it took to get Biden over the line, not just because he won comfortably in the end, the politics of race plays such a central role in that, and including some of the demographics of the politics of race. And the UK and the US are not in the same place on that. And some of Labour's challenges and dilemmas around questions of what tend to be called culture are particularly acute around this. To look at Biden and to look at the Biden coalition and try to recreate it in this country seems to me almost certainly not achievable. It would have to be a a UK version of that, and that would be very different. And for all the reasons you've just said, actually, when you think about the UK version of the coalition that would be needed to get Labour into power in Westminster, you then hit the issue of the union. And so the US and UK... Though, of course, there have always been lots of parallels in terms of policy and some of the attraction of the Biden administration is the ways in which it seems to be suggesting that there are dynamic policies for centre-left governments to adopt that could have mainstream support. But the structural challenges seem to me to make the UK Labour Party look more like the weaker continental equivalents than the stronger US parallel. I don't want to overestimate the role of the elite level commentators, the never Trumpers, but clearly there was a group of voters, former Republican suburban voters, relatively high income, who were part of the Biden coalition, and they can go under the slogan of never Trumpers. And if you look at what happened in the 2019 election in Britain, and you look at the conservative voters who didn't really much like Brexit, in fact, some of them really, really disliked Brexit and didn't much care for Boris Johnson. Most of them, when it came to it, were never Corbyn people rather than never Brexit voters. And I think that is a difference. When when that really divisive issue came, the Conservatives were able to hold on to enough of their Remain voters and the Republicans weren't able to hold on to enough of their hate Trump Voters and, and that's why I think Trump is central to the different political situations in the two countries. So we've got two more to go, <laughs> and that's the two big ones still. So geopolitics. I'm thinking of things that have sort of happened since we last spoke. So we, you know, we've had the beginnings of a conversation about a global level for corporation tax, and we've had you know, noises coming out of the UK government about taking a lead on this and the possibility, and this connects to the fifth of your issues. So you've got geopolitics and you've got climate. All of these things have in the background either Brexit or what we might call post-Brexit politics. I mean, we'll never be post-Brexit, but post that phase. Do you see any signs of a, leaving aside, I know we'll touch on this in a second, that those central cleavages in, in world politics, particularly China versus the United States. But do you see any signs as we emerge from the pandemic, at least as the developed world emerges from the pandemic, the worst of it may yet be to come in many other places, and we should never forget that. But when we think about the G7 and other organisations, do you see the beginnings of a sign that this is a possible opportunity for new kinds of geopolitical initiatives? Or do you think this is basically fairly frothy and the hard reality which we've talked about a lot, of US-China relations and how they might develop over the coming years is really the only game in town. 
I think I'm more inclined to the latter. One of the things that is interesting, though, since we last talked about this, is that if one of the stories of 2020 was the divergence between Britain and the European Union over China, particularly in terms of what happened in the response to events in Hong Kong last May, we saw a story of more geopolitical divergence between Britain and the EU bound up with Brexit than might have been assumed um, a year earlier than certainly in the immediate aftermath of the referendum. But what we've seen in the first six months of 2021 is some movement back from the position that the European Union had ended up taking, particularly in relation to the investment deal that was reached at the end of last year. I still think that it is not entirely clear that in the end that treaty won't be ratified, but the politics of it look quite a lot more complicated, the internal politics within the European Union, than they did six months ago. And the, and the willingness of China to sanction for members of the European Parliament has obviously been part of that story. And I think it's fair to say that we can see from Biden a hope to try to bring the European Union towards the American position. And in this, it would be the case that I think that the advantage that Johnson thought they might have gained with the new Biden administration of being the one European country that looked like it was tough on China might be diluted. And that isn't a complication and it's not perhaps so, and it perhaps has consequences then for the Northern Irish issue if Britain hasn't got something so, or the Johnson government, I should say, hasn't got something quite strong to offer to the Biden administration that's distinctive from the EU's position. On the other hand, I think that the the structural relationship, particularly between Germany and, and China, is is now sufficiently deep that undoing that in a, any kind of unified way at the European Union level will be quite hard. So I think that that's still something that's still in play. But I think that that question of where, if you like, the European Union led by Germany is going to land on the US-China rivalry question is going to be quite central, actually, to to British politics, or geopolitics anyway, I should say, not just a question for the EU and the US itself. And it looks like rivalry with China is the lens through which the Biden administration thinks about pretty much everything to me. And so presumably that then is also going to be central for climate politics too. Absolutely. And also, I mean, this is a bit parochial, but the Johnson government would like to at least signal that it's, as it comes out of the pandemic and as it thinks about what it wants to do in the medium to long term, that it wants to take a lead on at least some questions, partly because of Britain's role hosting or chairing events this year. But the hard realities of geopolitics mean that it's not in Johnson's gift to set a lead on this. No, I think that in terms of the geopolitics of the climate question, it's bound up in what we've just been talking about, the EU-US relationship in particular, over China and particular what position Merkel's successor is going to take on that. Because Merkel's, I think, been quite strongly inclined, even since Biden's taken over, to treat China as more serious about climate change than Washington. And that the change in administration here hasn't made so much of a difference. I don't think that that's a position that Johnson's going to sign up to. He's going to want to be presenting a green energy orientated Britain as lined up with the US and the US is a much more responsible partner to use that language on climate than China could ever be. The point in which Johnson might think there's something that he wants that's distinctive for Britain out of all this will be trying to orientate the city or encouraging an orientation in the city of London 
to becoming the leader in green finance. And the fact that it's not been possible thus far to reach any kind of agreement with the European Union about equivalence in financial services, I think will only incentivise the Britain needs to be at the head of green finance move that Johnson looks like he wants to make. One last question or thought posing as a question or question posing as a thought. The politics of climate, if we go back again to before the pandemic, and part of what we're thinking about here is the extent to which the pandemic has changed things and the extent to which the pandemic has sort of held things in place and as it proceeds, at least in our domestic politics, other things come back to the fore. Pre-pandemic climate politics seem to me to have three levels, not just in the UK, but in many places, but in different places, different levels were to the fore. So this was, and for all sorts of reasons, it's gone quiet, but I suspect it won't be quiet for long. The sort of heightened Brexit phase was also the phase of Extinction Rebellion in the UK playing a prominent role in protest politics, but also other things too, the Greta Thunberg movement, if that's the name for it, and certainly her profile. There's that kind of, let's call it activist climate politics. Then there's the question of green parties or climate policies in electoral political terms. And again, in some places that looked more prominent. The Greens in Germany, we've talked about that. The Greens didn't do particularly well in this week's elections. And there's some sense that maybe that they've peaked a little bit too soon. We'll have to see. But certainly we've talked about it. We've also talked about it in other European countries too. And it depends a lot on electoral systems, the possibility of much greater prominence for either green parties or green policies in electoral political terms. And then the ongoing question about technological innovation, the possibility of quite dramatic changes in things like the cost of renewable energy, things that aren't outside of politics because nothing is outside of politics, but seem to at least potentially have their own trajectory and their own time frame. And I've always been interested in when and how these three things are going to intersect. When, for instance, is activist politics in the UK going to intersect with electoral politics? It hasn't happened yet. Or alternatively, when is some of the potentially dramatic change that's happening? And I know, Helen, that you were sceptical about how quickly any of this can happen. But when potentially some of the dramatic change that's happening in the domain of economics and technology might change the political narrative. When you look at the UK and you think of those three levels, activism, electoral, let's call it technical and economic, which do you think is going to dominate over the next few years? Where will the action be in climate politics? At the moment, it doesn't look like it's electoral. Do you think that could change? No, I mean, I think that what's striking, I mean, it's going to be in the, for the time being, it's going to be in Britain, it's going to be in the third Mm. around the economy and innovation and what the political implications of that are. What's striking in Britain is that we don't really have a contested electoral politics around green energy at the, the moment. And that is a big contrast with the United States. I think one of the reasons for that is that you know, we're a, a fading fossil fuel producer in the United States. It's not only not fading, it's just had a decade or near where it's been probably the most significant single energy producer, if you look at it in terms of oil and gas in the world. So that makes the politics of the US in relation to all this, I think, very different than the politics of the United Kingdom. And at the moment, all the, well, the Conservatives, Labour and the SNP in Scotland, so the three most significant parties outside Northern Ireland, are all pretty much in the same place. I mean, there might be some argument about like what the, the target date for achieving net zero is. I think the Sturgeon's government have brought theirs 
forward and Labour wants to run all these parts of the shadow cabinet, including Ed Miliband wants to run a sort of critique of the Conservative government that they're not moving fast enough. It's not entirely clear to me that Labour have got a strategy for moving any faster, but that's maybe another matter. But what we're seeing is basically all the parties in the, the same position, which is a commitment to achieve carbon net zero by between 2045 and 2050 with some quite specific interim targets, including about the sale of uh, stopping the sale of, of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030. And that this isn't really being contested um, at the moment, neither the end of it, the aim of it, nor the means by which it should be endeavoured to be achieved is being contested. And I find it hard to believe that that is going to last for that much longer. Because aside from anything else, the thing that green energy has been about for the last, I'd say, since at least some point in 2019, perhaps a little bit earlier, is driving a growth strategy. And you can see that not just in Britain, but in quite a number of other developed countries. Economies, including the United States, it's, it's become a means about recreating the productive base of these economies, not least in relation to Chinese competition. And so long as that's partly what it's doing, it's not difficult to sell that into something that is a vote winner. And I think that it's an important part of the way in which Biden wants to say we can make appeals to the kinds of people who voted for Trump but didn't like him very much and we can address their economic concerns. But the issue of like whether it's all going to be successful in terms of actually achieving an energy revolution and what the costs of green energy is going to be and what the distributional, how the distributional burdens are going to be shared, that is going to be contested. And at the moment, we, we just don't have a politics in this country that's structured in any way around our main parties for conflict over those questions. Even something basic like, let's say, well, how much do you think should be achieved in terms of that 2050 target by eliminating carbon emissions and how much should be achieved by carbon extraction technology so that we carry on using some fossil fuels. These are far too big questions, it seems to me, and far too divisive questions, ultimately, for there not to be a a politics that emerges about it. I'm not going to put a time frame when I think it will, but by the end of this decade, I think we're going to see quite sharp conflicts around this, and our party politics is going to have to be able to respond to that. And presumably, it's possible that the conflict will first manifest itself at the first of those levels I talked about. After all, over the last five years, we've had Extinction Rebellion in Greta Thunberg, but we've also had the Gilets Jaunes. And yeah. it must be possible, particularly if the parties don't adapt. I mean, we've learnt with Brexit, among other things, that when the parties don't adapt to shifts in public opinion and, and deep contests, it finds a way out somewhere else. So at those three levels, it's not it's not clear what the sequence is going to be. And it must be possible, I suspect, post-pandemic, we're moving into an age of more confrontational and indeed direct politics that it first reveals itself outside of parliamentary politics. Yeah, I think that, that is a quite possible scenario. I think it's also a quite possible scenario that you start to get some movement within the Parliamentary Conservative Party that becomes unhappy with the green energy agenda, particularly if it doesn't yield quite as many jobs in as part of the, the levelling up politics, because clearly Johnson wants to use it for that purpose. And indeed, I'd say partly wants to use it in relation to the, the union as well. And it wouldn't be, I think, difficult to see a combination of activism on both sides on the streets of those who want to go much more rapidly and those who want to basically engage with the issue of more of the adaption and a 
not happy about, particularly I think what will happen around policies towards cars, that that ends up on the street. And then that you have, as I say, a part of the Conservative Party that becomes responsive to that side of things and a part of the Labour Party that becomes responsive to the, let's call it the Greta Thunberg activist side at the other end. I think though, in a way it ties it back to the question of like the Labour Party. I think the middle issue though, the electoral issue, quite a bit perhaps will turn on like how the Labour Party gets to grips with the green energy revolution in relation to what it thinks its future as a vote winning party and a possible party, a supposedly possible party of government can be because there's going to be a lot of opportunities I think for it to critique the direction of travel of the Johnson government's policy but whether there are opportunities that many people in the party could be particularly happy to, to want to take I think is a is a whole other matter but the Labour Party to reinvent itself will have to get to grips with where it sees this how it sees green energy developing. I like the way you qualified possible party of government as supposed possible party <laughs> of government. Let's not build them up too much. That was fascinating for me. For anyone who would like to ask us some questions that we will try and answer over the coming weeks about any of that, and it doesn't have to be limited to that, but I think there's plenty there. We would love to hear your questions. You know, In a way, we've been talking to ourselves and to our guests over the past year. If you would like to ask us some questions, we'll put out a call on Twitter if you follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. But you can also send your questions to us via our website. We are talkingpoliticspodcast.com. It'll be easy to see how you do it. We'll look at all the questions. We'll try and answer as many of them as we can. Helen and I will have the questions put to us and we will try and do our best to answer your questions about any of politics of the pandemic, the politics of the union, the politics of the Labour Party, geopolitics, climate politics, and other things besides. Before we get to that, next week, I'm talking to the politician that Helen mentioned towards the end there, Ed Miliband, about his plans to make the world a better place. Do please join us for all of that, and do please send us your questions. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.